You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, world, and welcome to Tales from Hollywoodland, a veritable feast of movies, Broadway, showbiz stories, news and gossip with Julian Schlossberg, Arthur E. Friedman, and Stephen J. Rubin. Today, we look at great TV shows. And now, here's Julian, Arthur, and Steve. Hey, guys. TV, there's a topic. I thought we would start by each of us telling our, our earliest memories of watching a television show. I'll start. I remember living in Chicago, where I lived briefly from the ages of zero to four. And I remember watching a game show called Masquerade Party. And all of the contestants were wearing masks. I ha- it had an effect on me. Do you guys remember that show? I sure do. And Peter Donald, I think, was the host. And celebrities did got much more than just a mask, Steve. They really went into wigs and glue and beards and everything. And I remember it well. What about you, Arthur? What's your earliest television? Well, my, my, mine is easy. Mine is easy. First of all, if you all go, oh, you guys ever see a movie called Avalon? Barry yes. Levinson directed Very Avalon. Nice. Sure. In Avalon, he shows the first, when the first TV sets came along and how they would sit and watch the test pattern. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is before your time, Mike and, and Steve. But that it was so mesmerizing. And if you'd walk by TV stores in the streets of the Bronx or wherever you may have lived, they had TVs on and the, and the TV had the test pattern. And people would stand by the window and look at the test pattern. I remember looking at a test pattern. I was a little kid and my folks got a 10-inch, I believe it was called Strumberg Carlson or something, TV set, looked at the test pattern. Uh, when a show came on, my God. But the biggest show that ever came on and at that time would have been 1948, Milton Berle. I don't think anything has been like it since, Julian. I don't think anything has completely captured the nation and froze it where restaurants closed. Things closed to people to watch Tuesday night, Milton Berle at 8 o'clock. Unbelievable. Now, was that a half-hour show or an no, hour? No, sir. One no. hour. Brought to you by Texaco, originally called the Texaco Star Theater. And then eventually the Milton Berle show. And as Arthur said, it was unbelievable for kids like us to couldn't believe that we don't have to go out and shows will come into our house. We were so used to going to the movie theater. And now there were movies on television. And it was, I tell you to this day, I'll never forget it because it was such an extraordinary change in our lives right Arthur it was absolutely uh, you know the year before Jackie Robinson broke the color line that was a big change that was such a huge story in 1947 along 1940 here comes Milton Berle black and white tv doing a vaudeville show basically that's what it was different acts uh and uh I can tell you and for our audience that Milton Berle was a star a real star at that time before television uh, he was playing in New York at a place at a big at a theater. I forget that what it was called. He was getting twenty five thousand dollars a week in the 1930s. That's how big a star he was, which is one of the reasons why they chose him at NBC to come on and do this television show. The other thing is, he told me that the in 1939, he did a television show in 1939 pre-war. He did a TV show that were like 800 sets in the New York area, in the whole New York area, and they did a show. So anyway, when it came time for NBC to, to, to take this thing really seriously, they went to Milton and said, how about doing a show? I mean, for an hour or what have you. And he came up with the Voidville idea, which he was what he was doing in theaters. And it caught on so big that, as Julian and I are saying, it's unforgettable. It literally froze your life. You sat down in front of that TV show and you were just transfixed on dog acts and seal acts and guys playing the piano and twirling plates and God knows what. It's It's all true. And when I lecture at schools and colleges, one of the things I 
get a kick out of is I say there was no remote. What? No remote? No. If you wanted to change the channel, you got <laughs> off your ass and walked up to the channel and changed the channel. If the brightness was off, you did the brightness. If it was contrast, you did the contrast. And those famous th- little wings above the television where you'd turn it around towards, you thought. Rabbit ears. Rabbit ears. Rabbit ears. That's right. It was. Well, I'll, give, I'll give you a great one. I'll give you a great one. So it's 1948, and I'm a kid sports fan, millions of sports fans in America, and they broadcast the Boston Red Sox were going to play the Cleveland Indians in a one-game playoff as to who was going to go to the World Series in 1948. Well, again, it was like a Milton Berle moment. Everybody was in front of that TV set watching a baseball game that happened to be coming from Boston. <laughs> wow. Are you kidding? I mean, this thing you heard on the radio. What are we doing? So uh, it was. It was just. A, I guess it was just amazing to to even think about what we were watching in those days. That was the beginning of television. Julian, do you remember when they started the coaxial cable and they had sure. a guy standing by the George Washington Bridge yes. and somebody standing by the Golden Gate Bridge? I remember it very well. I also remember because we're kids. Howdy Doody. I mean, this was huge. This guy, Howdy Doody, with Clarabelle and Mr. Bluster. And then there was Rudy Kazooty. I guess you had to kind of end with a E at the end of, or the Y. But yeah, these were the Magic Cottage with Pat Michaels. These, these were shows that were all originating and so primitive if you looked at them today. Sometimes you'd watch a show and the set would fall on an actor. You'd actually see. <laughs> The set, he'd come into the door and something fell down on him, but they kept going. I'll give you a good one, Julian. I'll give you a good one. Who, who, who went up when they had now a different channel? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't ABC, it was NBC and CBS, as I recall. At yeah, time. And ABC and some, came pretty some local, t- some local TV stations in New York. Who went as opposition to Milton Berle on those Tuesday nights? Do you recall? Was, was it Red Buttons? No, it was Father Fulton Jean. Oh, oh, that was on the Dumont Network. On the Dumont. A pastor came on, a a religious guy, to give sermons opposite Milton Berle. Never had a chance, you know. (laughs) He probably would have had more people if he had gone to a church. (laughs) Yes, that's true, though. Well, he was a big bishop. Fulton J. Sheen. He was a big boy. So let's go to a different generation here. Mike, your first TV memory. Well, my first TV memory is way old, you know, way newer than you guys since I'm so much younger. It has to be Sesame Street. And, but it was the very first episode of Sesame Street. It was like nothing I had ever seen before. And my parents were very much the type of generation. Let's get the kid out of the way. Let's put him in front of the TV and everything. And, you know, I, grew up with, you know, the, I was the generation, the first generation of Sesame Street, Electric Company, all the Saturday morning cartoons, all that were my big memories. And then of course, all the, you know, early seventies sitcoms, all in the family, happy days, Laverne and Shirley, good times, you know, all. So Mike, we're talking about the early seventies. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, you know, those are my earliest memories of TV. Right. Well, at Sesame Street was the end, end of the 60s was when it started. And so I remember that. But I also remember, you know, of course, being fascinated by, you know, my mom used to watch this um, horror soap opera called Dark Shadows. And, oh, yeah. and sh- it scared the living crap out of me, literally at the time and i used to hide behind the couch because it used to give me nightmares barnabas collins was one of the most scary creatures on television at the time (laughs) it was pretty how about how about you steve what are your early shows well i remember being eight years old and i wandered into the living room and my parents were watching a show called the twilight zone and it was an episode called the silence and it took place in a private club where a, uh, an older retired military officer was constantly being annoyed by this motor mouth. 
I think his actor was Liam Sullivan and Francia Tone played the officer. And he got so annoyed with this guy who was trying to sell some kind of investment thing that he bet him $500,000 that he couldn't shut up and not say one word for a whole year. And that was the setup. They actually moved him into the basement in a glass booth, and he had to sleep there for a year. And I, I watched about 10 minutes of that, and I, I was totally freaked. But, you know, an eight-year-old not being able to speak for a year is like torture. So I ran out of the room. I never watched The Twilight Zone again until until reruns. And then, of course, I, I wrote The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, which I immersed myself enormously in it. But that would have to be my favorite TV show of all time, just in terms of quality. Um, well, Rod Serling was a great writer, and he was a fun host. And he also wrote for Playhouse 90. And Playhouse 90, you remember, Arthur, this was a really an important 90-minute dramas. High quality. Incredible. And you had... Arthur Penn directing before he was Arthur Penn and John Frankenheimer before he was John Frankenheimer. These guys cut their teeth on early TV and movies like The Miracle Worker and Marty and The Requiem for a Heavyweight. They were all originated on Playhouse 90. Wonderful, wonderful show. And many other and many other shows of of high quality uh, in the 50s, early 50s. Uh, Great writers, as you say, think of the film people that came out of television. Uh, Arthur Penn is an example, but there's so many that were writing great TV, that were directing great TV, that got into films and what have you. We became very friendly, part of our uh, extended family with Dwight Hemian, who was uh, one of the greats of all time directing television uh, specials when they came about. And he was doing Color Me uh, call me uh, Barbara, Barbara, call me Barbara, call me whatever, Frank Sinatra, man and his music. He was the king of those specials, which was a whole other aspect of how great TV became. Uh, but I want to get, I want to get to something that again, Julie and I can speak to more than you can, Stephen and Mike, but we, you got to mention it in terms of how television revolutionized the world. I'll begin Julian with the debate between JFK and Richard Nixon in 1960. How transfixed was the, was the United States of America on that? They must have had 90 million people watching that. Uh, and it was great television. I mean, these guys were, you know, Kennedy was, was a star of stars. Nixon was sweating. He did have the sweat on, on his lip, which, which, which was, you know, didn't work too good for him. And then I want to switch right from there and go to the missile crisis in 1962. Do you remember the world was going to end? And we we're going to watch JFK's speech that night. Uh, if you say, do I remember? I was in the United States Army in Fort Dix, New Jersey. I was packed with my duffel bag, and we were going to Cuba. We could not leave the base. We had to, if we went to the movie theater, we had to tell them where we were. It was the most frightening time of my life, those four days, the days of October. You were in the Army at that time. Isn't that something? Now, let's switch quickly and go to 1963, November 22, and President John F. Kennedy is assassinated. The role television played in that, that was it. The apex of anything I could remember from from those days. Uh, Three, four days sitting in front of the TV with your folks. Everything closed. The world shut down. It was was unbelievable. And you watched these real things happening in front of your eyes. Including murder. Including we saw Leif Harvey Oswald murdered by Jack Ruby on live television. I don't think that's ever happened again. Only no. in network. No, but not <laughs> not not in reality. And that's the real problem. The real problem is that sometimes it's very hard for the public to separate reality from what's really fiction. That's I so want true. I want to jump back to. Um, Playhouse 90 for a second, when the same month that um, The Twilight Zone debuted on CBS, fall of 59, James Aubrey took over as head of programming. And James Aubrey was a very, very interesting man who thought he really knew what television was all about. And he did not believe in anthology. He felt that people would tune in to TV each week 
if they had a character they could follow, like a Lucy from I Love Lucy, or a Jim Arness from Gunsmoke, or uh, Robert Stack as Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. So one of the first things he did was cancel the most honored television series and TV at that time, which was Playhouse 90. And in fact, even though the Twilight Zone stayed on CBS for five years, uh, Aubrey tried to cancel it several times. And in fact, after the third season, he canceled the Twilight Zone and replaced it with a TV series called Fair Exchange, which was hardly that because it bombed in the ratings. And then with hat in hand, he had to call Rod Serling and ask him to bring back a replacement series in uh, in January, a mid-season replacement. And that's how The Twilight Zone became a one-hour show for a brief period. Well, and the thing we have to remember about Rod Serling, too, on top of everything else, is Rod Serling was a star. He looked great. He sounded great. He had great presence. And he chain-smoked, Right. Oh, he, he did smoking. Oh. oh, yeah, he was a five pack a a, a day man. He uh, he was also a, a, a veteran, a World War II veteran. He was a paratrooper in the Philippines and saw great horror. And in fact, he came back from the war traumatized. He was seen by therapists in Chicago, and they advised him to channel his fears and and nightmares. And that's how he became a writer. He decided to channel everything into writing very seriously that's great yeah i never knew that one of the one of the most amazing things off uh is the fact that in the history of television it seems that comedy was king no no matter what i mean it wasn't the only thing of course there's there's sopranos and succession we can talk about a million shows but laughing laughing what laughing did was almost unbelievable Everybody was watching Laughing, and you remember that, you guys. You sh- you guys all should remember Laughing. I would think, yeah. And out of that suck came it to the... me, suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me. <laughs> <laughs> out of that came the huge star of Goldie Hawn. She was the giant star from that show. Um, it, it all in the family. Another comedy that just knocked America on its ear. Because it was so different, so unique. And if you look at those two shows, they are so different and so unique. But look at how Laffin, look at how Laffin also took a basically flat Richard Nixon and brought him back by just making him seem real and to sock it to me or something, whatever he did. That's what he did. And they would stay, and, and the public loved it. And so, you know, uh, so, what, didn't Goldie every week get a bucket of water thrown in her face for something? Very, very often. Yes, she did. And there were plenty of other people in there, you know, Audie Johnson and, of course, Rowan and Martin. But who Goldie, was the creator of that? Was that George Schlatter? Who was yes, that? It was George it was Schlatter. Schlatter yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he went on to do the Dean Martin roasts, didn't he? No, that was Greg Garrison. Oh, who? what else did he do, though? Schlatter did, Schlatter did a lot of stuff. Sinatra yeah. stuff. Uh, who used Powerhouse. So, yeah. Arthur, if you had to sit there... And say, what is your favorite television show of all time? A show that you just felt just really sent you over the edge each week. What would you say it was? For me, it, it's simple. I, I was not, I didn't watch a lot of uh, uh, sitcoms. Uh, so, but I did start looking at, uh, I, sh- I saw Mary Tyler Moore in a rerun. And I was so taken by it, how great it was that I, I would watch the reruns of, of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Never have enjoyed anything more in terms of a sitcom. Uh, and uh, you talk about, again, writing and the the the, the chemistry of that cast uh, and her. Uh, I love that show to this day. And if, if you've never seen the episode of Chuckles the Clown, yeah. you, you should yeah. all see Chuckles the Clown. Because I, every time I've seen it, which could be 50 times, I laugh out loud. Yeah. Uh, Isn't there a great my favorite show? Isn't there a great moment where maybe on the first episode, she walks into Ed Asner's office and he tells her, you've got spunk. And she thinks it's a compliment. And then he says, I hate spunk. (laughs) But what a cast. What a cast in that with Ed Asner and Mary and 
and Gavin McLeod and uh, Ted Knight. My God, he was so brilliant in that. Ted Knight stole a show from me, but then along came Betty White, who was great yeah. in anything she ever did. And Valerie Hopper and Chris Leachman. Leachman. Yeah. I mean, it was it was incredible show. I think mine would be, though, probably Seinfeld. I, I've seen every Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld. I can't believe that, quote, a show about nothing turned out to be the biggest or one of the biggest shows of all time. And what was amazing was that they had four principals and every show had four in a half hour. Every show had four stories of each of these principals. They're really hard to do and beautifully done by Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld. So that Cast, was, yeah, no, casting, I'm, casting, casting. Yeah. I'm curious, Julian, because I did not embrace curb your enthusiasm. I find Larry as an actor to be the most annoying person I've ever seen on television. And I know that I've watched some episodes and they are hysterically funny. And I have friends who swear by curb, but did you embrace curb as well? Partially there. there it's, a, it's a real hit and miss show for me. There are some fantastically things that are really hysterically funny but it is true, he's such an obnoxious swine that it's really hard to embrace him. So uh, yeah. I would say that hit and miss. How about you, Arthur? You same, yeah, him? exactly the same, word for word with what you just said. But the stuff that I liked when I when I watched it, some of it's really funny stuff. I mean, but that's the way he is. I, I I've met uh, him a couple of times, but I know people who are friends with Larry. And that's the way he is. His, that's his character. It's, it's kind of easy to do. It's, it's kind of like not to drop a name. Like I, I, one time I, I met John Wayne. We were sitting at, uh, at the Polo Lounge in the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I was invited over by a friend who was with him. And he was there with Andrew McLaughlin. And uh, we're sitting in this little booth. I'm eating the potato chips. I always love the potato chips and the guacamole at, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, the Polo Lounge. And I, I realized two minutes into this whole meeting, he's not even acting when he's in the movies. <laughs> this is the guy that's this is the same guy that's in the movies. Hello, Pilgrim. That's what was him. It was him. He was great. How was you great. doing, Arthur? Right. But <laughs> what you saw with that's very good, Steve. But yeah. the guy you saw with Larry with Larry David, it, that's Larry David. Yes. And by the way, the uh, Jason Alexander, the, the uh, George Costanza, is the Larry David character. That was his first uh, sojourn into writing a guy who was a pretty much of a putz. Yeah. Love the bit something... they did with, with, with George Steinbrenner. I, I thought that was so great. Yeah. It was just Larry something. Playing. The writing was so kind of, I identify with everything they were going through. They were picking on little things that we all deal with every day, but they actually incorporated into stories. They could do a whole story, or at least one of the four stories, about buying a babka. I had no idea what a bobka was. I learned about a bobka. <laughs> I actually, so help me God, my wife just gave me a piece of bobka for my birthday. Oh, <laughs> it's funny that, that, funny that that comes up. My second favorite, or I don't know, I hate to say, is also Everybody Loves Raymond. Now, I had not seen, like Arthur did not see Mary Tyler Moore initially. I caught Raymond afterwards. Elaine May actually said, you ought to watch that show. Well, that is one terrific show. Funny as hell. And once again, like Seinfeld, incredible. And Mary Tyler Moore, incredible actors. You know, it's interesting when you look at the history of comedy on television, invariably the hit shows had a cast. Not It wasn't just one person. The only person, and I couldn't watch it because I didn't like it, but the only person I know that pretty much had a comedy success for hundreds of years alone pretty much was Red Skelton. Uh, it wasn't my kind of show, but he did do that. Even Milton Berle at the beginning had Arnold Stang and Sid Stone, and he had a bunch of people around him. And in the sitcom world, as we all know, you got to have a cast. It can't just be somebody going through something. But you know, you know what's great is that when you think back to the early days of TV, which we were around to see, Julian, and you think of, of if they couldn't say the word damn, you couldn't say hell, you couldn't say these words, and then graduated through the years to a show about masturbation on Jerry Seinfeld. But think of, of how far it came and the language. Lenny Bruce was put in jail for saying dirty words. 
look where that's come on television. You can say anything. Uh, 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 Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball were on that show forever. They never slept in the same bed. Right. How <laughs> dare you can't do that. <laughs> now, stay with that for a second, Steve and everybody. Let Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz, I love Lucy, a show my mother would never miss. My mother, my sister, whatever. This show was was like a Tiffany Jewel. Do we all realize how great I Love Lucy really was? If you look back at those things, they were great shows. The writing, the whole tech, tech technician, uh, technical part of of the the viewing of it with with the uh, two or th- was it two or three uh, cameras, Julian? I'm, I'm not sure. It wasn't I, one. I, I think no, it was three. I think uh, Desi Arnaz started a lot of things. Uh, uh, and that was one of them, and a live audience and a lot of other things. And they also started syndication. They got involved in syndication yes. first. Yes. But they were um, great shows. They were great. Look back and they stand up, I'm telling you. And These again, and again, like we say, Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz, William Frawley, Vivian Vance. It's a cast that are doing it, not the just one yeah. or two people. Here's a piece of trivia. Desi Arnaz's show, I think it was called the Westinghouse Playhouse, featured a one-hour show called The Time Element, where William Bendix starred as a bartender in New York City who every night when he goes to sleep, he thinks he's at Pearl Harbor on December 6, 1941, and he has to convince the the town that they're going to attack the next day. Hmm. That was considered the unofficial pilot for the Twilight Zone. Oh, I, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like a Twilight it sounds, Zone. It yeah. got such fan mail for that episode that Desi Arnaz introduced that uh, it encouraged Rod to pitch the Twilight Zone series to CBS, and they they lapped it up at that time. You ever see the movie? Ever see the movie Final Conflict with Kirk Douglas? Final Countdown. Final Countdown. Uh, oh, yeah, where an aircraft carrier goes back yeah. in time. Great yeah. show. Great show. I was going to ask Mike, Mike, what is your all-time favorite TV series? Oh, well, that's tough because it also depends on your mood. It depends on your thought process at the time. And your age. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, you're a genre guy. You like fantasy, horror, science fiction. Of course. What would you? What would be your favorite in that genre? Well, there's a British um, science fiction show called Doctor Who that I've been into since I was probably eight or nine years old when, you know, I was just skimming the TV at the time and we had just gotten cable and we had actually access to WOR in New York City. And we basically Saturday afternoon, there was this British show on and they were fighting ninjas and there was midgets and there was giant rats and a time machine. And it was like, I'm hooked. This is what I fell in love with. Can't go wrong with midgets, uh, Mike. No, you can't at all. all. (laughs) Little people, little Little people. I want to, but, but it's interesting too, because, you know, then, you know, as I got older, there was other, you know, I got into the Star Trek stuff and I got, into but also i got into a lot of drama like especially like stuff i was able to watch on repeats from the 60s and the 50s and man from uncle um my grandfather and i used to watch get smart together because he was a huge mel brooks and buck henry fan and you know then as i got you know over the years you know there's been other series but the one that always stands out and still holds up to this day is the sopranos and it's a wonderful, wonderful show that changed television in a lot of ways. It did. And yeah. it was just it was just amazing to um recently Judy and I started watching the first couple episodes just to see how it held up. And it's it could take place today. That's how good of a series Mike, it is. Mike, you know, the whole the whole concept of of a gangster killer having a psychiatrist in itself is just a brilliant idea. Uh, and on top of it, an anti-hero. There was no such thing yeah. on television as an anti-hero, but he he was someone that you really cared for in between him walking yeah. people. It reminded me of Marlon Brando in The Godfather because they said, 
well, Vita Corleone, he's against drugs, so he's not so bad. He's no. killing people. They're wiping them out. But because he's against drugs, he's a good guy, uh, we think. That's right. and he was also a family man, as was Tony Soprano. And I think part right. of that whole thing was you're dealing with a guy whose kids are going to school. His wife needs more money for the groceries. I mean, it was daily stuff. He's got to go out on the front driveway and pick up his newspaper. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Did you no, guys I'm, ever hear did you guys ever hear George Carlin do the routine about war, the rules of war, where the people sit around and have the rules of war and say, Well, uh, look, you can do anything you want, but you can't use mustard gas, okay? You can't, but you can bomb somebody, you can throw a hand grenade in their head, but you're not don't no mustard and no bullets that are too big. They have to be it's a brilliantly funny yeah. routine. Yeah. But it's the same thing as craziness. You know, he didn't do drugs, so that makes him a good guy. I want to mention something. I want to go back to Dwight Hemian, a man who was the first director of The Tonight Show with Steve Allen. And how Dwight told me these great stories of how it was so, everything was improvised. You know, Steve Allen decided one day, I want to walk out in the street and talk to people. That's where that all began. And he would, they opened up the door to the Hudson Theater. Out in the street, went, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, and that started all, all of that. Uh, great shows. If you ever want to laugh, if you're ever down, uh, guys and audience, there's a piece of Steve Allen in that show reading the sports section with a funny hat, and he becomes hysterical reading it and looking at himself doing it. It's out there somewhere on YouTube. But it's, it'll also make in, day. it's also in my show that I produced with Steve Allen called The Golden Age of Comedy. It's Big Bill Allen. Big That's, Bill Allen. Allen. And, of course, we knew that the sportscaster was named Mel Allen, so that was almost <laughs> a kind of a, ch- a jump on that. But Big Bill Allen cannot stop laughing. Can you I mean, stop laughing watching it? You can't stop laughing. You can't. It's impossible. And I used it in, in a very prime time place in our show i did did show two shows with steve i'd like to switch to something that that i was shocked about because i never felt that television sitting in your home would in any way be uh make you uncomfortable or uh, intense or but there were two shows 24 with Kiefer sutherland and homeland with claire danes are two of the shows that I don't think anyone can sit through without really getting your heart beating and intensity, which is shocking if you're sitting at home. Do you guys see either of those shows, any of the three of you? I, I embraced Homeland during COVID. We binge-watched all of the Homelands, and it was a very intense show. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Kiefer. We didn't watch 24 but we watched a show he did called Designated Survivor, where he plays. I guess I didn't know this when they have the joint session of Congress for the like, is it the inauguration or whatever? One guy cannot go to the Capitol. He has to stay in an office because if a bomb blows up the Capitol and kills all the senators and congressmen and the president and the vice president, there's got to be one guy. And of course, what happens? Somebody blows up the Capitol. Everybody dies. And Kiefer Sutherland, who's like the he's the assistant secretary of, of urban affairs or something like that. He's now the president. <laughs> but it's not a comedy. It I wasn't wanna, a comedy. I want to go to uh, to a, uh, a genre of shows that uh, are still around. They're, in fact, they've been around from day one. Uh, quiz shows, game shows. Uh they was at the beginning. These they never fail. Now they've, they've re- reincarnated a lot of them that are still you know, they're playing uh, with new hosts and stuff. Uh, I worked with Robert Redford on a quiz show. I was uh, Bob's uh, uh, person on uh, theatrical distribution for quiz shows. I got to see a lot of how it all worked. Uh, and I go back again. I say to Julian because he was there when certain quiz shows are on the air. The world froze. People watched it by the millions. God knows how many millions of people are watching 64, whatever these things were called, you know. $64,000 uh, $64, question. $64,000 question. And 21. 
And well, twenty one was what his show was based on. Exactly, was, uh, Charles Van Doren versus Herb Stemple. Oh my God! We Would John Turturro play Herb Stemple and uh, and uh, Ray uh, Fines? Ray Fines. Ray Fines. Paul Schofield was in in Redford's picture. Great yeah, movie. He was, by the Mark, way. he was Van Doren's father, Mark Van Doren. Mark, yes. Historian. If you haven't seen that movie, folks, take a look at Quiz Show. It's great. But who the hell knew when we were watching that these things were rigged? That's the whole puzzlement of Quiz Show. They well, here's, the, here's the funny thing. The, the, the game show producers were Jack Barry and Dan Enright. I went to work for Jack Barry and Dan Enright when they introduced a show called The Joker's Wild. Yeah. which was the slot machine show where the Joker, Joker, Joker. I had been a contestant on the Joker's Wild in 1973. And then I found out they were looking for writers and I got a job writing for them. And writing for a game show was an interesting experience. Tell me what you tell, tell us what you wrote. Some of the things you wrote, Steve. What what would you write for for one of those shows? As an well, example, we for instance we we had a uh, we sometimes you would get into trouble. For instance, we had a category on um, I think international cities, and the question that we would ask the contestant is: the capital of the Philippines is known as the Pearl of the Orient, and the answer we were looking for, of course, was Manila. And uh, we later got letters from people explained to us that in 1973 or whenever they had changed the capital from Manila to Quezon City. So we had to, we had to, all these letters. And then another show, I learned how to write a question. We had a question. Uh, I think it was in animal movies. The question was um, a movie that starred George C. Scott and Trish Vandeveer had two animals named Alpha and Beta. What what kind of animals were they? Porpoises. Well, the, the, that's interesting you should say that, Julian, because the title of this movie Dolphins. was Day of the Dolphin. So we called the contestant wrong when they said porpoise. Now, we got letters from ichthyologists or whatever those fish experts were saying that in the sea, porpoises and dolphins are the same creatures. They're inter interchangeable. So we had to bring that, that contestant back we called wrong. But I learned that when you write a question like that, you have to start by saying, according to the title uh -huh. of this 1974 movie. It's the according go. to, huh? Well, right. You know, we should point out, because it's really interesting, there's no question that 21 and Tic-Tac-Doe were fixed by Barry and Enright. But the $64,000 question, which gets lumped in there, was not. In fact, so much so that when it was proven that it wasn't, they brought back, and since it was later, it was now the $128,000 question. Yeah. And it went on the air. But it was interesting that that happened. Um, an evolution, but they were very, very successful public loved game shows, and they do to this day. Oh, yes. Uh, I want to step and, back. And, I want to step back, if I can, to. Uh, Oh, just let me say one thing, yes. if I may, and then I'll sure. shut up. Game shows are also great for the everyone involved because they're cheap to produce. They are cheap you to produce. Guys, also remember how popular um, shows like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was with yeah. Regis Philbin for right. quite some time, and it was got so popular they put it on every single night of the week and took care of its popularity immediately. Exactly. You like guys, you guys know, you guys know the, the most, the most uh, successful form of making money on television for over 60, 70, 80 years. The cheapest form of, of and they make money, they make fortunes is local news. Local mm. news. One set, same people, and they just, and the news, it manufactures itself every day. And uh, you know, you look at a lot, a lot of local news stations. How many times can, can you see a 7 Eleven robbed? Uh, we, in, in, in L.A., we don't call it the local news. We call it the local bad news. Local bad news. Well, that's, <laughs> but that's true of, of all the cities. They go with bad news. <laughs> I want to go back to the, to, to the Tonight Show. So it started with Steve Allen nationally, and then it went from Steve Allen, which was great stuff, to Jack Parr. It was great stuff. Jack Parr was a ter terrific host, very popular in those days. And then it finds its way to Johnny Carson, who, as I've talked so many times about the elite of the elites. And here came Johnny Carson. And boy, did he knock that thing out of the park for 30 years. Uh, 
there was nothing quite like it before or since. No one's really been able to, to capture, uh, you know, the magic of what he did. Uh, so there's the Tonight Shows also, by the way, huge money makers, huge money makers, because they've got that one set and the guests are being paid minimum, you know, and they get the, the biggest stars in the world on the show for that amount. But it, it worked as, as a concept. Uh, the sofa, chair, the desk, uh, brilliant in simplicity. Being a, a World War II buff, as I know you are too, Arthur, um, as a young person, I learned a lot about history from watching certain shows and just getting into the minds of soldiers. And in 62, the fall of 62, during, during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, ABC put on combat with Vic Morrow and Rick Jason. And for five years, my dad and I watched that show voraciously every Tuesday night, and they fought World War II in France. I mean, in reality, it only took about six months to, to capture France, but in TV, it went on for five years. <laughs> well, it was a great show. Yeah. Great show. Great yeah. show. And then, and then I'll mention one other series, a mini-series, that went on uh, in early 2000 called Band of Brothers. And Band of Brothers, to me, is probably the greatest miniseries I've ever seen, just in terms of intensity. Julian, you talk about the intensity of Homeland. Uh, Band of Brothers, with that Spielberg type of camera work, was pretty amazing. One of the things we haven't mentioned was how great in the 50s, 60s, 70s were the comics who had their own show. Jackie Gleason and Phil Silvers and Burns and Allen and Jack Benny, all the Bob Hope, all these people who came from radio and, as Arthur said, often vaudeville, then made it to television. And it was really quite popular to watch these shows on a weekly basis. Hard to believe now when they have series that go from eight to ten shows that these people were doing 39 episodes a year. Yeah. 39. I mean, think about that. It, it The grind that would be to every week have to turn out a new show. Uh, but they had, they had these guys, Julian, you take a, a show as an example, the Phil Silver show with Sergeant Bilko. Uh, nothing's been better than that. You know, if you take, again, who wrote it? Look at these writers they had. Nat Hyken, one of the, the great the, comic the, writers. The oh, Julian, you were associated with reviving interest in one of the greatest shows of all time, the show of shows. Which Good was, season. which was, um, um, it's Caesar. It's Caesar. Thank you. And Imogene Coca, Carl Reiner, and Howard Morris. And it was, uh, it Wasn't was Woody Allen, movie. one of the early writers on that show as well. That, not really. I mean, he came at the very end. They, they, you know, it's, they have the wrong, often, as I've said many times on our show, the internet's wrong and people get the wrong thing. Sid Caesar went from your show of shows to his own show called Caesar's Hour. And that's basically where Woody, Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon, they all came in. Uh, they, they, at the end of show of shows, they were there, some of them, but they really came into their own on Caesar's Hour. That's where they really did. Again, look at those, look at those writers he had. Look at those right. writers. I mean, oh you God. can't, you can't even believe it. It's Murderer's Row, right? Murderer's Row. And Julian, please name them. Larry Gelbart, Woody Allen, uh, Mel Brooks. Uh, it, it, yeah, and uh, Neil Simon. Neil Simon. All yeah. came from this show. Uh, with Sid Caesar, uh, great thing. Red Buttons was the MC at Sid Caesar's 80th birthday in Beverly Hills. And he said something like the following. He said, Sid, he said, you know, with all of the great things you've done, the TV shows, the nightclubs, the movies. Can you think of it, though, Sid? You'll always be known only for your salad. Nothing more than your salad. That was it. <laughs> two croutons, you threw them in with anchovies. You know, who the hell knew? One, so, thing, that I, one thing that I've always marveled at, because, you know, we talk about TV shows today where there's 12 episodes and they're half hours, but soap operas, what they chew up in terms of how much the actors have to work how many pages they do in a day. It's not uncommon for them to do 30 pages a day or maybe even more, maybe 60 pages a day on these soap operas. And I have, uh, I've always been, I found it amazing the amount of 
uh, energy they exude and how many people follow them, although not as much as they used. There's only a few left. But in its heyday, soap operas were the cash cow for those. Well, they, but they, they still are, Steve. When we had the, when we talked about the great comedies, did we talk enough about Tootsie having to do with, with soap operas? I mean, that's, that's one of the funniest movies of all time. That stuff with the soap opera, uh, you know, it all, it all came about. Uh, hysterical. Uh, have we all seen Tootsie? I, I trust we have. Oh, my oh, gosh. Of course. It's, of it's course. an iconic film. Soap, uh, opera. soap operas uh, have been going on for, forever. Oh, in ra- from, radio. From radio. That's right. Yeah. It came from radio. Bill, Bill Murray you know, looking at Bill Murray looking at the TV and saying to uh, Tootsie, "You slut." <laughs> well, that, that was all about the telephone calls. He 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 came home. They were roommates, and he had a bunch of telephone calls. And that's when he called him a slut. How about the was, line? How about was written? That was written by Elaine May, and she wrote the. She came up with the idea that Bill Murray should have. I mean, that Dustin should have a roommate. That was her idea, and her idea to cast Bill, and they became real lifelong friends, Bill and Elaine. Did she, did she write the line when <laughs> filming her for the first time, uh, Dustin Hoffman, and somebody in the room says, you better move the camera back, and yeah. someone says, you got to go back to Cleveland. Yeah. How does Cleveland sound? I don't know if she wrote that, but I do know she wrote <laughs> the guy coming outside and singing some enchanted evening. I I cracked up. <laughs> I fell apart. She definitely wrote that. I fell I, apart. But you know, we really should talk about a gigantic television show that really broke all kinds of ground, and that's MASH. My God, what MASH did and for I mean, for it came out during the Vietnam War. They made sure it was Korea, not Vietnam, but the parallel was not lost on how crazy war is. And for years and years, what a success show. What a successful show that was. Do you guys like MASH? Of course. Who was the writer, Julian? Well, Larry Gelbart. There you go. MASH, but in the movie, it was written by a blacklisted writer, Ring Laudner. Ooh, didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, interesting, I had dinner with Bob Altman, (laughs) who made the movie, and uh, he was not thrilled about the television show. Didn't like the idea that that was happening, but it turned out to be such a success. Um, and what again? What a cast there! You've got about eight or ten top actors really doing their best work. I was told in the late '80s uh, at the, the studio one time that uh, Larry Gelbart, who was so great as a comedy writer, uh, used to make a million dollars a weekend by just reading a script that they handed to him and said, "Please make your notes." And that was his million bucks. He would read the script and turn in with his notes. And that was a nice way to make a million bucks. Larry Gelbart was a giant, uh, you know, he's a giant of all time. Uh, I loved, I worked with him. I loved working with him. He was a terrific guy, a lot of fun. And I, he, you know, his father was a barber and his client was Danny Thomas. And he said to Danny Thomas, the barber father, you know, my son can write some comedy. And Danny kind of, to himself, rolled his eyes. He said, well, let me, okay, have him send me something. And that's how he started. Hmm. Um, interesting way. Uh, I, we, we were out of town together uh, in Boston trying out Sly Fox with Richard Dreyfus. I was producing Larry, was, was written it, and uh, Arthur Penn was the director. We were all having dinner, and at, at one point, we were talking about people who had passed away, and Larry Gelbart just piped up and said, "You know who's really dead?" <laughs> you mentioned Danny Thomas. Uh, let's talk about the magic of his show. Oh, make room for Daddy! Make room for Daddy! Big hit, great show, just great. Hans Conried, uh, Angela yeah. Cartwright. Angela Cartwright, the little kid, well, too. Rusty wait Hayward. a second. Let's not forget Gene Hagen from Singing in the Rain. Let's not forget wife. Gene Hagen. Yes, absolutely. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we shouldn't go on, by the way, without mentioning someone we've overlooked so far, uh, who, again, talk about a giant of television, Edward R. Murrow, smoking cigarettes and interviewing people. Uh, person to person. Person to person. But, again, a giant. There were giants in those days. These were the guys... And girls who came out of her original TV, the Steve Allen show originally, that was the creation of Steve Lawrence, Edie Gourmet, Andy Williams. 
That's uh, right. That's true. From that one show. And then Martin. later, then later, Louis Nye, Don Knotts, Tom Poston, all of them, all of them. It's uh, interesting, though, too, also, because you mentioned Danny Thomas. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is was a juggernaut in the early 60s, uh, was a spinoff of the Danny Thomas show. And what I'm talking about, of course, is the Andy Griffith show. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. amazing. You, you would not go anywhere in the world now without somewhere Andy Griffith playing on TV at all hours it, of the day. Absolutely yeah. right, Mike. Except for one thing, it wasn't a spinoff. It was produced by Danny. He produced you know, that that had nothing really. It, it, you mean as far as both having family? You mean no? Both having it, family. He, Danny Thomas on his show had Andy Griffith as a small town sheriff pulled Danny as Danny Thomas was in going through town. He p- pulled over Danny Thomas and put Danny Thomas in jail for a misunderstanding. And it was Andy of Mayberry. And never knew that Michael. And well, yeah, it was he, so, he was so popular for that segment. Danny Thomas said, this is striking gold. Let's make a series based off of this. Mm. And you know, that's I, I see what you mean. I thought you meant spinoff from Make Room for Daddy, but it is. He was he did appear on that show. Well, mm-hmm. Danny also had Dick Van Dyke. He had the real McCoys, um, and his partner was an actor named Sheldon Leonard, who was in It's a Wonderful Life, amongst many many other things. He was the great bartender. Character. Yeah, great yeah. character actor and a great and a terrific gangster. He was always a gangster, Sheldon Leonard. And well, if you listen, if from... you, that's right. If you listen to Sheldon Leonard talk and you listen to Mae West talk, it's the same voice. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you come well, up and see me well, sometime? But I'll I, tell you, I think he, one. Go ahead, Julian. I was going to say we should say that Sheldon Leonard produced I Spy, and I Spy was the first time an African American was a star with the, a co-star. The two stars were Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. And mentioning Cosby, even though he's certainly not a name to mention now as far as the public is concerned, that show, Cosby, swept the nation for yeah. years and years. It was an well, before it Before it went on the air, uh, there was an article in TV Guide that said the sitcom is dead. And then Cosby comes on and changes that. Yeah. That, I have that, to talk about a, a genre that was all over the 50s, and I certainly... Uh, moved on from masquerade party westerns. There were probably oh. 40 westerns on TV at one point. You couldn't move between Cheyenne and Bronco and Rawhide and have Gun Will Travel and Bat Masterson. And, Bat Masterson. And Maverick. Maverick and Gunsmoke, which lasted. Bonanza. 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 Uh, exactly. And that was a big one. Which was the one that Ward Bond was on? Wagon Train. Wagon Train. Wagon train yeah. yeah. Sure. And, of course, uh, Rawhide starred a very young Clint Eastwood. And uh, these shows, I mean, in those days, kids, this is before your generation, Mike, when the kids were getting their toys for Christmas, they were getting six shooters and cowboy hats. Right. And, and, of course, if you watched uh, Davy Crockett, you got a coonskin hat to, to boom. <laughs> we also should mention the breakthrough with gay people on television, because for a long time you couldn't do anything like that. I think I think I may be wrong. The first time that I remember was Billy Crystal on Soap. Yes, and I think that was the first. But we, you know, we went into. I mean, Ellen on the show Ellen, not the the uh, talk show, but the show called Ellen had forty two million people. Think of what I'm saying: forty two million when she supposedly came out on the show that she was gay on the show and in real life. And then there's Will and Grace and the L word and Q is whatever it is. And, but it, it, it's uh, it took a long time as Arthur said, Lucy and Desi or whoever said were sleeping in different beds. Yes. A lot of things have changed in our lifetime. And Billy Crystal, who was first came on to my knowledge by doing uh uh, one of the great impressions of all time of Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay. Uh, it was just hysterical doing it. That begat into him playing on uh, uh, on the show as, as as a gay guy and the rest of his career. 
uh, has been, I think, fantastic. One thing I want to say about him again is, if I repeat myself, forgive me, but he's probably the last of the com- great, great comedians of the era that we we talk about often, from the Milton Burles to Jackie Gleason's the Red Buttons, uh, just, you know, so many of those guys. But I think Billy's the, the last one, and he is great. Well, we, an area where we certainly miss him is hosting the Oscars, because when he hosts the Oscars, host when he did host the Oscars, it was always very clever in that opening. The best. It was the best. No one ever came close. Quickly, Perry Mason, L.A. Law. We had law shows. <laughs> you know, there's so many shows. And this is a kind of top topic I think we should come back to later on in the series because there's so much more to talk about. Oh, sure. Sure. The Defenders. The Defenders. Oh, whoa, my God. Herbert E.G. Marshall. Yes. And Reginald e. Rose. Yeah. Um, and and uh, he did. Brodkin did The Nurses. Another show, and it's and the doctor shows. Come on, guys! ER and Doctor Kildare and Ben, ben Casey, Casey. so sure. much stuff. So I think we have to say we'll table it, put it on the back burner, and do another show if you guys agree. Agree, oh, absolutely. And we can do a science fiction show as well because there were dozens of shows. I mean, when Twilight Zone went on the air in '59, there was nothing like it, and oh. we could talk a lot about that. Absolutely, then came the Outer Limits. <laughs> the outer Limits. We control the television. We control the vertical. We control the horizontal. Steve, what was the last line of, of that Serling always said on every after every show at the end of the show? The last was, line? Yes. Welcome. It wasn't welcome to the why. It was the first line. It was. It was your. Well, it's always submitted for your approval or. Uh, <laughs> he had different ones. Of course, they changed the opening uh, narration. You are traveling in another dimension, a dimension of sight, of sound. Yes. Of mind. But they changed it. Interestingly, the first season of The Twilight Zone was not the theme. That wasn't introduced till season two. Bernard Herrmann, the great composer, did the score for the first season of The Twilight Zone. They also, also Rod Serling was not on camera in the first season. He, his voice was there. But remember what I was telling about James Aubrey insisting that they go to shows which featured actors rather than, I mean, uh, the same actors. That's why Rod Serling had to come on and host his show because you had to have an iconic figure. The same thing that was going on at that time with Alfred Hitchcock and Alfred Hitchcock's show. We yes, didn't talk about that. Wow. That's something we didn't discuss. Wasn't there a last time. line in Twilight Zone? You were now leaving the Twilight Zone. Well, they like would that. have their end narration, and it would it would relate to the story, uh, but it would end yes. with the, the word the Twilight Zone. Well, we've come to the end of our show, and as always, I think we've had a lot of interesting things going on. For our viewers and listeners, uh, please subscribe to our show. In a world where there are very few things that are free anymore, we're very free. And we love uh, when you recommend us to your friends. Uh, we're very good in the car. If you're driving somewhere, we really keep you company. Right, Julian? Absolutely. Send us emails. Send us emails. And our email address is talesfromhollywoodland at gmail.com. Uh, we've had an ongoing contest where you can become a co-host. If you want to talk about a subject you feel that other people would be interested in, not the idiosyncrasies of your Aunt Ida, but something dealing with pop culture, we actually would love to hear from you. Uh, write to us, talesfromhollywoodland at gmail.com. We will uh, consider you. And uh, we are available on all the podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Amazon. And we have our Facebook page, Tales from, from Hollywoodland. And uh, we love having contact with our listeners. Gentlemen, it's been fun. And again, happy birthday, Julian. Oh, thank you, guys. Happy thank birthday, you. Jules. Happy birthday, you, Julian. Thank you, guys. And I'll see you next week, I hope. Bye, everybody. We are the Cigar Nerds, bringing nerdy sophistication and geeky indulgence on all topics, including movies, video games, science, and pop culture news, all from the Nerd Cave Cigar Lounge. 
Find us on iTunes, Stitchers, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found, including ESONetwork.com and CigarNerdPodcast.com. So fire up a cigar. It's time to get nerdy. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.